Well, good morning, family. Good to see you all here. What a joy to be here in the Lord's house this morning. And glad you made it. I'm always excited just on Sunday in the summer just to see any of you here. A lot of folks are gone. And uh, it seems every week different folks are gone and, and uh, different ones are here. And that's what makes our psalms in the summer such a good thing because you can hit a week here and there and miss a week. And, and uh, every week it's something different. You don't miss a part of a series. I encourage you to take your Bibles, open to Psalm 131, Psalm 131. It is one of the shortest Psalms in in the Psalms, one of the shortest chapters in all the Bible, just three verses. And so some of you are already thinking, wow, is it just possible that pastor might actually have a short sermon today? You'll note the inscription of the Psalm, it's a song of ascent. Of David, Song of Ascents, we did uh, a couple of weeks ago, we, we looked at Psalm 130, another one of the Psalm of Ascents, 15 Psalms bear that inscription from Psalm 120 to 134, 15 Psalms, and uh, they're called that most likely because they were the songs that were sung by the, the pilgrims, not the folks that landed at Plymouth Rock that wore the black hats and the little belt buckle on their hat and stuff. Not those pilgrims, but the ones that, that were Jewish pilgrims on their way to worship God at the temple in Jerusalem as they would as they would ascend the hills, climb the hills on their way up to Mount Zion where the where Jerusalem and the temple were. They would sing these psalms. And this is a psalm of David. David, the one whom, of whom God Himself says in 1 Samuel that He is a man after His own heart. A man after God's own heart. This psalm, short as it is, is really a marvel. One, one writer described this psalm in this way. He says that it, the majority of it is uh, holy eavesdropping. We listen in and get intimate access to this man of God, David, and we get a, uh, intimate access into his inner life, his inner thoughts as we listen to this man in, a, in an intimate conversation with God. In these few verses, we'll discover the the inside secrets of a man who is calm, a man who is content, a man who is confident. And then we're invited to come along, to join in. And I wonder, those words, calm, content, confident, do those words describe your life on a typical given day? Calm, some of you are going, are you kidding me? <laughs> to be honest, it doesn't describe mine most of the days. Most days, probably a better description is frenetic, frantic, you know, just turbulent, hectic, not calm. What about content? Generally, are you content with life? I dare say the majority of us, at least a good bit of the time, are discontent. We are dissatisfied. We are restless rather than content. 
What about confident? Are you confident in the future in the midst of all the stuff going on in our nation around us? All the stuff in the world around us? Are you confident in the midst of the stuff going on in your own home, in your own, in your own job, at school? Are you confident? Or are you rather fearful, apprehensive? See, I think this psalm has a lot to offer us this morning because those are the, the words of, that really describe David and we get an inner insight how what he is can become what we are. I have to say, however, that while I think most of us desperately need the lessons of this psalm, I struggled with this psalm all week long. Not to understand it, because I don't think it's particularly difficult or particularly complex. I mean, three verses. And it's three verses with three big points. And it's not that hard. That's why I called it a simple psalm. But while it's a simple psalm, the reason I struggled with it is because it describes a person that I really would like to be, but one that I fall so short of being. And for that reason, the great old preacher Charles Spurgeon wrote about this psalm. He said, it's one of the shortest psalms to read, but one of the longest to learn. So it is in my life, and so I don't come here today telling you how I've got this all uh, all down pat, and this describes me, but rather to encourage you to come join along with me as we listen in and we seek to learn from David, and maybe together we'll learn and we'll grow together, and this psalm will become more of who we are. So, let's ask the Lord's blessing as we dig in. Father... Thank You for Your Word. Thank You for this psalm. Thank You for the great lessons that we are about to dig out and unfold from Your Word. I pray that You would give clarity to these stammering lips, that You would help me to be a suitable mouthpiece to proclaim the truth that's here. And Lord, in Your grace, that You would help us not just to be hearers of the Word, but doers. That we would apply the lessons here. And that You would work through Your Word by the power of Your Spirit and that You would begin to change us into people who are calm and who are content and who are confident. And so, Lord, speak to us now. We want to see Jesus here. And learn of Him. In His name we ask these things. Amen. Follow along as I read. O Lord, my, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother like a weaned child is my soul within me. O oh, Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Short and simple, three verses, three main points. First, in verse one, is simply this humility, be humble. Someone said once, 
they don't give out merit badges for humility. And that's a good summation of our culture. Our culture it doesn't put a big emphasis, it doesn't value highly humility. We celebrate achievement. We celebrate success. We celebrate getting ahead. And we, we flaunt our success. We flaunt our achievements, our accomplishments. We, we try to improve on our status even by the things that we wear, the clothes we wear, the brands, the styles. We try to improve on our status by the cars we drive. We try to improve on our status by the, the electronic gadgets we carry around and the uh, the homes we live in, the neighborhoods we live in, the people we hang with. We are a culture that is obsessed with status. And yet, the Bible calls us to humility. Because pride is a dangerous sin. It is a deadly fault. Pride literally puts you and me at opposition with God. That's what Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. When you and I are proud, we put ourselves in opposition to God. He opposes the proud. It's pride that causes someone to think, well, you know, I'm really not such a bad guy. It's foolish pride that says, you know, I really haven't done anything bad that needs God's forgiveness. It's like the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18 Jesus was telling the story of a Pharisee, a parable to the disciples. He was trying to get a point across to them. And, and you recall that Pharisee, he's thanking God as he's praying very loudly and very publicly, Oh Lord, I thank You that I'm not like the rest of men, especially this tax gatherer over here. Oh Lord, that every day I... you know, And he goes and starts listing all of his great religious Good deeds. Meanwhile, over to the side, this tax gatherer, Jesus said, even afraid to lift his eyes up to heaven, just quietly pleads and begs, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, that man, the tax gatherer, went home justified that day. Not the other man. Because God is opposed to the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. See, God is a merciful and a forgiving God, but only to those who recognize that they are sinners in need who humbly come and ask for God's grace through Jesus. And that is always His invitation to you, to anyone, come. There's forgiveness. There's grace if you trust in Jesus Christ. In this, this verse here, this first verse that focuses on humility, there's really three particular aspects of humility that David calls our attention to. 
He says, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My heart, my heart is, is the inner me, how I think, how I feel. And he's, he says, my heart, how I feel is not, how I think is not lifting myself up. He's, he's not puffing himself up. How easily we recognize pride as arrogance. Arrogance, that, that self-righteousness, that self Promotion, the feeling of superior, uh, the boasting, the drawing attention to what we do, what we are, you know, whatever it is. He says that you and I need to let pride go. Need to let go of it. But that, that pride that he's concerned about sometimes doesn't show up as arrogance. Matter of fact, sometimes it shows up in a very different, very sneaky way. See, sometimes pride shows up as the the pride of not of having and doing, but the pride of wanting. It's a pride that that craves and that wants the attention that the folks who have the other stuff get. It's that that craving for the approval of others. It's the craving for the superiority that other people have. It's the craving for the possessions or the whatever it is that we might perceive someone else having. And that's actually pride. It cloaks itself. It disguises itself as low self-esteem. It hides itself by wallowing in self-pity or self-deprecation. It may seek attention. It may seek the uh, the sympathy of others by acting needy or appearing weak. And all of these things seem to be the opposite of pride, but it really is the same thing. Because at its core, it's self-centeredness. It is self-focus. It's pride. David calls for us to let go of it. My heart is not lifted up. But we're called, you and me, to be humble, to let it go. The Apostle Paul to the Romans said, For by the grace of God I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. We need to have an honest assessment, an honest evaluation of ourselves. We all have varying degrees of beauty, wealth, Abilities, of strengths, of resources, of gifts, of opportunities, of achievements. And humility doesn't mean we deny who we are or what we have. That's not humility. But rather, humility recognizes that everything that we are, everything that we have, is a gift from God. Humility doesn't deny our achievements, but it recognizes that every achievement we have is a gift from God. And there is therefore no place for pride. So David says, my heart is not lifted up. But he continues and he says, my eyes are not raised too high. He's not only concerned about the pride of how he views himself, but he's concerned about the pride of how he looks out and how he and how he um, 
how it affects his aspirations, his ambitions. And what he's calling us to do is to let go of our selfish ambition. You know the verse in, in Philippians chapter 2 where it tells us to have the mind of Christ, have this attitude that was also in Christ Jesus. And he goes on and he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. It's not saying that we can never have ambition. It's saying we are not to have selfish ambition. And we're not to be conceited. Again, it's, we're not to be proud So it doesn't mean here when it says do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit or when David says here that I have not raised my eyes up too high, the Scripture is not calling for us to be people of low aspirations. To be people who will not attempt great tasks or do great things, but rather it's addressing our motivations for doing whatever it is that we do. See, you can desire, you can strive to become a great athlete so that you can have lots of people look up to you and that you can become a household name and you can get wealthy. Or you can be like Eric Liddell, the Olympic champion back from the, when was it, the 30s, became the movie Chariots of Fire. If you've never seen that, I encourage it. He said this, God made me fast. And when I run, I feel His pleasure. What He said was, is God gave me a gift. I can run. And He made me able to run fast. And so when I run fast, I feel His pleasure. God is smiling down and saying, whoa! He wanted to maximize what He was. He became a world champion. But not so He could exalt Himself, but so He could exalt Christ. It's not about what you do, it's why you do it. You can go out and build a business so that you can get rich. So that you can have lots of stuff. So that other people look up to you and go, ooh. Or, you can be like R.J. Letourneau. Most of you probably never heard of him. R.J. Letourneau was one of the most prolific inventors of the 20th century. He was, one day he was in church and he heard his pastor say, God needs businessmen too. And R.G. Letourneau, having struggled at what is he, what was he going to do with his life, decided, I think I'm going to go try to be a businessman for God. He was a sixth grade dropout. Started some businesses that moved along, did okay. Started a business just a little bit before the Great Depression. And it began to prosper. And just as the, in the height of the Depression, he determined that he would start giving 90% of everything that he earned to God and live on 10%. As I said, he became one of the great inventors and entrepreneurs of the 20th century. Over 300 patents to his name. He became a very wealthy man. But that wasn't what he was after. He spent so much of his time going out and telling people about Jesus and giving everything he could give away to the cause of Christ. See, David isn't calling you and me to live in mediocrity 
or to live with low aspirations, but rather He's calling for us to rein in any desire we might have to live life for ourselves, to live life for our glory rather than living for Christ. So we're to let go of selfish ambition. Thirdly, He says, I do not occupy myself with things too great or too marvelous for me. Again, I don't think what David is saying is what it might appear on the on the surface. He's not saying that we shouldn't try to understand things that are deep. He's not saying that we shouldn't try to to understand hard things, difficult things. He's not saying we shouldn't go try to solve big problems or great mysteries. That's not at all what he's saying. Rather, he's saying that you and I need to understand and we need to know our limitations as people. If I could put it in another way, he's saying this, let God be God. He's saying this, there is a God and you're not Him. Neither am I. And because we're not God, there's some stuff that we just simply won't understand. We need to accept that. Things like, looking in the mirror and go, why did God make me like this? (laughs) Or looking at our life and, and saying, why did God allow this to happen? Why? Why this illness? Why this cancer? Why this disaster? Why this loss of a loved one? Why this betrayal? Why this abuse? You see, we can sit around and we can start asking all the questions and begin to say, you know, God, I don't get it. And so, God, I think you're wrong. I think you messed up. And we begin to take the place of God rather than recognizing there are things we just cannot understand and we need to leave it in God's hand. There is one God in charge, and it's not us. And so there's a time to just accept that there is much we cannot know, there is much we cannot do, there is much we cannot change, and we need to leave in God's hands what is God's job. Speaking of job, that makes me think of Job. (laughs) You know the story of Job, because Job is sitting there in the first few chapters of Job is the story of how everything just falls apart in his life. Intense, immense suffering. Then the whole next section, the bulk of the book, is all about all his friends gathering around as Job is trying to go, what is going on? And all his friends going, dude, you messed up somewhere really bad. And Job going, oh, I don't think so. You know, I'm not. I don't understand. And everybody's trying to figure out why is God doing this? And nobody has a good answer. And finally, God speaks. And so you go, when you get there in the book, you're going, alright, now we're going to get it. Job is going to understand from God why God is doing this. And you remember what happens. Everything God says is questions. Hey, Job, do you know, and then he asks a question, 
And the answer is rhetorical. The answer is, uh, no. <laughs> Do you understand? Uh, no. Do you know how? No. Do you know why? No. And it just, it's at one, again, it's this relentless barrage of questions. And the whole point is this. If you don't understand those things, you can't understand why. Job, I'm God. Trust me. That's what David is saying here. I do not occupy my things too great and too marvelous. I leave those things in God's hands. Verse 2. Verse 2 brings a second big point. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. David says he's calm and he's content like a child curled up, cuddled in his mother's arms. I have lots of grandbabies and I, I watch them as they are in their mom's arms and they're just content and they're resting and such a secure and wonderful place to be. David says, that's where I am. He is, and the point, second big point is be content. And David is content. But you'll notice that what he says here is, is he says, I have calmed and quieted my soul. David just didn't wake up one day and go, I'm content. He made a choice. He chose contentment. He chose to calm and quiet his soul because what he recognized is that contentment is not about our circumstances. Contentment is really about a change of attitude within our circumstances. We, we'd like to think differently. Even if we know the truth, we like to think differently and we tend to think if, if my circumstances will change, I'll be content. Right? Do you, do you ever live that way? I do. We think if I just had, if this problem would go away, I'd be content. Or if I just had less problems in general, or if we'd had a little more, a little more money, a little more stuff, uh, Bigger house, a newer car that doesn't break down. Well, a brand new car, right? You know, whatever. We, we, we keep thinking, if I just had this, I'll be content. Now, we all know it doesn't work that way, but we think that way, don't we? And we live that way. And I wonder, when will you or when will I ever learn our lesson from our experience? You see, in my house, my closets are full. My garage is full. And eventually, my Goodwill bags and boxes and my trash cans are full of all the stuff that we thought, oh, I just need that one more tool. I need that one more. Now, you can never have enough tools. I, I get that. <laughs> But we just think, just one more thing, just one. And we really don't think it's going to change our life, but we sure think it'll make us happy <laughs> or something. Huh? Will we ever learn? Stuff will never satisfy. Nor will getting rid of our problems, because we look around and we realize that there's somebody that has 
a whole lot bigger problems than I have, and they've got a whole lot more of them, and they're perfectly content. And over here is a person who has a whole lot less problems than I have, and they are discontent. Contentment doesn't come because of our circumstances. David recognizes that and David chooses contentment. But would you notice where he finds contentment? Because he doesn't just create it out of thin air. See, David finds contentment. Notice, I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with his mother. David's contentment is found in relationship. He is talking with God. And he says, I've I've calmed and quieted my soul like a child in the arms of his mothers, and he's talking about his relationship with God. And what he's saying is, I found contentment not in circumstances, but in a relationship. Contentment with Christ. See, again, I go back to my, my grandkids and their parents. I see that with my grandkids. When there's chaos all around, when there's problems all around, when no matter what else is going on in the world, when my kids run up and jump in their mom's arms, everything is okay. You know that. You know that feeling because we all remember that. We know that when our kids jump in our arms and they are looking just for some security in the midst of the chaos and As soon as they're there, everything's okay. David is saying, that's how it is in my relationship with God. The circumstances haven't changed, but he has security in the arms of the Lord. As long as I've got David like a child, as long as I have mom, everything's okay. As long as I have Christ, I'm good. But there's a little phrase that David repeats twice, and I hope you noticed it. And whenever something's repeated, trying to get our attention, he uses that phrase, like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. See, that's significant. He says it twice because he doesn't want us to miss it. Not just a child in the arms of its mother, it's a weaned child. Now, if you've never had kids, you probably don't realize what that, the significance of that, but all of us who have had kids and have gone through the process of weaning understand that the weaning process is not a pleasant one. You see, that, that baby, that, that child grows up knowing that every so often, like every 30 seconds, <laughs> You know, mom, feed me. <laughs> and, you know, they tell, you know, like, mom, you've got 30 seconds. <laughs> and I better be fed now. And that's all they've known is the, that relationship and that, that, uh, that experience. It is the normal. It is comfortable. It's familiar. And the child thinks, I cannot survive without it. Not another minute and 32 seconds. If that's the case, 
Why does mom wean the baby? Because it's good for the baby. I mean, there's tears. (laughs) There's confusion. And there's anger. And the baby expresses it in the only way the baby knows how. (laughs) You're destroying my life! (laughs) And mom is, no, I'm doing this for your own good. You can't mature if you don't wean. David is saying, hello, you see, I'm that child. I'm a weaned child. And the whole dynamic of a weaned child, the relationship, the whole dynamic of the relationship between mother and child changes. Because now when that child is up in the arms of the mother, the child is there just because of the relationship, the comfort and the, and the, the love and the, the security of the relationship, not because the child sees mom as dinner. And David says, that's what's happened in my relationship with God. God has had to wean things out of my life and there, it's not a pleasant thing. There are tears. There's, there's suffering. There's hurt. It's difficult. And there are things that you think you can't live without and God's had to take those away. And in the process of doing so, what I've discovered is the joy of relationship that's not based on what is He giving me now but just the joy of relationship with God because of who He is. And so what we realize is that God blesses us. Not not just in what He gives us, but that God also blesses us in the things that He takes away, that He weans us away from. That's something new to add to our Thanksgiving list. As God matures us, it will sometimes be necessary to to wean us away from things that we tend to cling to, things that we love, and things that we think we cannot do without. But the result will bring us closer to Him. So David, getting to this point, he is, he's had to, he says, we need to be humble. We also need to learn contentment. And that Contentment is a choice and it means we need to be contented with Christ and it means that contentment will sometimes require weaning. One last verse and one last big point. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Saying, hope believer, put your, put your hope in the Lord. Put your trust in Him, live out your life, act upon Him, act upon everything you believe, everything you profess you believe. Do it fully, completely. This is David's invitation to you and me to put our hope in the Lord and there to find confidence. See, that word hope literally means to wait and to wait expectantly or to wait confidently. It means that we're not waiting 
thinking that eventually here, I am going to accomplish all of my aspirations. I'm going to, I'm going to do everything I aspire to do. It's not self-confidence. It's not even confidence in God that sooner or later God is going to do everything that I want Him to do. Or that God is going to do everything I expect Him to do. Rather, what it is is a confidence that God will accomplish as we put our hope in Him. He will accomplish His plans. And it's a confidence that His plans are always far better than our plans. See, my plans have an awful long list of what life ought to be like. And if we learn anything through following Christ, we figure out sooner or later that He doesn't do everything the way we think He should. And He doesn't do all the things we think He should. But in the end, He will always do what is needed, and what is best. That's the message that, uh, that Paul wrote to the Romans, Romans chapter 8. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how we, will He not also, along with Him, graciously give us all things? In other words, if God gave Jesus for you, Will He hold anything else back that's really good? No. And so you can take your concerns, all the stuff you don't understand, all the stuff you don't like, all the stuff you wish for, and we can place it in His hands. Here it is. We can take all of our needs, all of our problems, leave them there. And we can be assured that He will do everything that is needed and everything that is best. There's an old poem that says it far better than I can. It was a poem that was found in the pocket of a Confederate soldier who died on the battlefield of Gettysburg back in July 1863. It says this, I asked God for strength that I might achieve. I was made weak that I might learn to humbly obey. I asked for health that I might do greater things. I was given infirmity that I might do better things. I asked for riches that I might be happy. I was given poverty that I might be wise. I asked for power that I might have the praise of men. I was given weakness that I might feel the need for God. I asked for all things that I might enjoy life. I was given life that I might enjoy all things. I got nothing that I asked for, but I got everything I had hoped for. And almost despite myself, my unspoken prayers were answered. And I am among all people most richly blessed. That in very real words, it seems, is the heart of David, one of humility, one of contentment, and one of confidence in a gracious and good and loving God. 
May God help us this week to be more humble, to be more content, to place our confidence in Him. Father, thank You for this little bitty psalm, one that we're tempted to just kind of blow by, read through very quickly, and miss that it is a treasure mine of things that we so often miss and so often neglect. It addresses things where we are prone to fail. See, we confess, Lord, that pride is a big problem with us. Whether it's arrogance or false humility or whatever. Lord, how easily we get self-centered, self-focused and how often we try to usurp Your position. And we want to argue with You about what You've allowed into our life, what You've brought into our life, or what you the prayers that You have not answered the way we thought they ought to be. Lord, forgive us of our pride. May we be humble. Teach us humility. Father, we, we as well recognize that we are so ill-content, partly because we're so self-focused. But Father, because we've been looking in all the wrong places, even though we know better, we tend to look to stuff. We tend to look to people. We tend to look to experiences. We tend to look to everything to fill that contentment except looking for it in You. Lord, may we be content and find it in You. Wean from us those things that get in the way. And then, Father how we are still tempted to trust ourselves, to trust other things, rather than putting our hope fully in You and waiting confidently, knowing that You will always, by Your grace, do that which is good and that which is best. So Lord, how we look forward to what You're going to do in us in the days ahead. As You continue to make us more like Jesus, and draw us nearer to You day by day until that day when finally either You take us home or You come back to get us. Now we look forward to that day when we stand in glory and then finally see You face to face. May Jesus be glorified in us until that day. This we ask in His name. Amen.